The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How y'all doing? There were some people from South Carolina visiting with us last service, so I'm feeling all twangy. How y'all doing? Hey, turn in y'all's Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, would you? Um, if y'all would mosey on over there, that'd be helpful. Can you imagine if I still talk like this? Because I used to. I don't know. I don't know. Doesn't make you sound as smart as like Alistair Begg's Scottish accent, does it? Oh, well. A couple of announcements while you're doing that. By the way, uh, if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up in the air and wave it around as if you had no concerns at all. And someone will make sure you get one. Um, first Wednesdays is this Wednesday night. Uh, food service starts at 5.30. We got Curbside King coming back out. Um, if you had to stand in line a little bit last time, I apologize for that. I think we got some things worked out that are going to fix that. Plus, we have some, uh, some other meals for kids um, that I think they might enjoy too that will help to kind of speed the process a little bit. As well as some games and things going on while we're eating. It's going to be a really good time of just worship, fellowship, and dessert is not to be missed. It will be very, very Instagrammable. Let me just say it that way. So you can come check that out. That's what happens when you put me in charge of something. Um, the other announcement that we have is, uh, by the way, dinner, by the way, it's five, $5 a person. I probably should have said that part. Um, also, milestone number two, faith commitment and baptism. If you have a child 12 years of old and younger that wishes to get baptized, um, Pastor Brent needs to touch base with them. We will be doing baptisms this uh, in just a couple of weeks here at Church at the Fair on July 16th. As you guys know, we're going to be gathering at Lithia Amphitheater. Um, no, it's by Mart Amphitheater now. I keep saying that. It's been changed now. It's been bought out. But anyway, they're at the fairgrounds for um, with Medford Naz, another church here in town. We're going to be worshiping together and there'll be baptisms done at that particular service outdoor. So if uh, you would like to participate in that, we need to touch base with you. If you could stop by the Connect Center or get a hold of Pastor Brent, that would be awesome. Um, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. So um, now that you're nice and comfortable, if you would, your, grab your Bibles. First Thessalonians chapter four, let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word. In today's text, we'll be looking at chapter four, verses one through 12. Everybody's favorite subject. You'll see when we read it. The word of the Lord says, finally then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God how to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 
This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just uh, pause now and bow our head and our hearts before you and ask, Lord, that you would have your way with your church, that you would speak your word into our heart and soul, that you would awaken our minds to your will and awaken our hearts to your affection. I pray, God, that you would transform us more and more into the image of your beloved Son and that we might walk as ambassadors of your kingdom in the world around us. So, Lord, may the words of my heart and the meditation of our Excuse me, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Nine years. It's the first time I messed that up. It was coming sooner or later. You guys know we turned nine last week, by the way. Totally forgot to tell you that. Happy birthday. First um, Thessalonians chapter, you don't celebrate nine. You know what I mean? Nine is just blah. Ten, we might do something. Nine, whatever. Come back when you're double digits. That's kind of what we do. So um, anyway, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we are today. One of the most common questions that people ask me, or you especially used to, back in the day when I did a lot of college ministry stuff, I used to talk to young people all the time that were kind of like navigating life, trying to cart or chart out where they're going to be going. And, and there would be a lot of people, well-intended, who just genuinely wanted to serve the Lord and be obedient to the Lord. And so I would often get the question, what is God's will for my life? And usually in that they mean, you know, who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to live? All those kinds of things. This text tells us what God's will for our life is. But this text also is the answer to a little more complicated question that's not quite as popular. Um, and it is that, wh what does life look like for Christians? What does the Christian life look like? And the reason I say it's not always as popular is because the answer to that question is oftentimes something that keeps people away from Jesus or a commitment to Jesus is a better way of saying that. Um, I, I would become a Christian, but then I'd have to give up this and I wouldn't be able to live like that. And I couldn't do this. And I don't want to be one of those people that does this and that and does all those things. And I, and people wrestle with that. What does the Christian life look like? And what does it mean? Now, now I need a little bit of a disclaimer. This particular text that Paul's writing here is a letter to the Corinthian church. And he's just spent three chapters celebrating the salvation of the Thessalonian people. So the text that we're going into today is one on Christian living. And there's an emphasis on Christian living. And the idea is this. If you're not a Christian, none of these commands apply to you. There's wisdom in them. You would do good to follow them, but they're not commands to you. The emphasis throughout Scripture is always that, like, be a Christian first then we'll worry about what it looks like to live as a Christian. And that's what Paul's doing here in this text. He's talking to the Christian church. So if you're here with us today and you've never given your life to Jesus, you don't believe in the gospel, then you just need to know this. You need to know that there is a God in heaven who created us, who created us for his purposes and his will. But our sin has caused us to rebel against him. But God is good and loving and doesn't want anyone to perish. And so God himself became flesh. Jesus Christ, both God and man came. He lived a perfect, sinless existence. He went to the cross and on the cross, God poured out on him the wrath of all of our sin. Our punishment for all of our rebellion and sin and wrongdoing was placed upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ and he carried it for us. He died but then he rose again on the third day, triumphing over sin and death. And he's ascended into heaven now. And he says to us now that if we will put our faith in him, 
believe that he is the Lord, believe in what he has done on our behalf and trust him for our righteousness, not our own record, not our own efforts, but say, he is my king. When we put our faith in that Jesus, then we are saved. We are forgiven. We've been given immeasurable grace and he has incredible plans for those who are his. You just chew on that. And now I'm going to talk to all the church people. And if you want to chat, we would love to be able to talk with you in the prayer room afterwards for sure. But now church people, what does Christian life look like? What does it look like as we are Christians? We have become part of the family of God. What is it that we're supposed to do? This text goes into kind of some of the, you might say, do's and don'ts of what Christian life looks like. And it's very Pauline, you would say. A lot of his letters, there'll be doctrine and then Christian living. Ephesians, incredible doctrine in the beginning of it, and then it goes into Christian living. We just finished Colossians, incredible doctrine about the majesty and supremacy of Jesus. And then it goes into in chapter three, then if you have been heard these things, you believe these things, what does life look like? And he goes into Christian living. And so Paul's doing the same thing again here to a church that is only a couple months old. He only got to spend three weeks with them when he planted this church. So you'd imagine he has lots to teach them and he's going to reemphasize some things that he has already taught them as he's telling this church, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is how Christians live. But I want to give a disclaimer again as well to the church people, to the Christian that's really, really important because there's a way that I could go into this text on Christian living and talk about all the things that the Bible says that we do and don't do. And I could be right in what I'm saying, but I could do it in a way that is actually unchristian and unbiblical. There's actually a way to do that, to be right technically in everything that I'm saying, but to do it in an order and a way to handle the text in such a way that is unfaithful to the biblical intention of how we are actually supposed to live. And so I want to take us back. If you remember a long time ago when we were in the book of Ephesians, we spent a significant chunk of time talking about this. I'm going to teach you guys a couple of seminary words because you're smart and you can handle it. Um, the words are this, indicative and imperative. In the Bible, Anytime there is an imperative, that is a command, there is an indicative before that. And you go, well, what does that mean? What are those things? An indicative is a statement of fact. The book is on the table. That would be fact. Well, I mean, if we had a table with a book on it, right? So um, the indicative, the book is on the table. That is a statement about what is, about what exists. Indicative, the book is on the table. But if I said, put the book on the table, that's an imperative, that's a command. That is an attempt to control what is going to happen. So if an indicative is what has happened, truth, this is what the reality of the situation is. And then an imperative is an attempt to control something that is going to happen or a command, what is versus what should be. And this is a absolutely important to understand biblical truth. And that is this in the Bible, any time there is a command, an imperative, it always, 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 how often? Always, you know this too, comes after the indicative, not the other way around. And here's what I mean by that. Um, let, let me give you an example. If I were to ask many of you in this room and say, hey, could you do me a favor? Quote for me the Ten Commandments. Many of you could probably do it or at least get through a few of them before you start all the ums and ahs and uh, what was that one, that kind of stuff. 
And if I asked you that, please quote the Ten Commandments to me. Most of you would probably start out, if you had the order nailed down, you would start out and you'd go, okay, um, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Is that true? Yes. That's the first commandment that's given. But is that the way that is intended to be given or presented to us? And the answer would be, yes, technically that's true. That's the first commandment. But you've left out such a significant part that happens right before that, that you aren't necessarily doing justice to what God intends when he gives the Ten Commandments. Because you started in verse 3 and you forgot what comes before that. See, there's a prologue. There's a preamble that's really important and should never be divorced from the actual commandments. It's 4th of July weekend, right? You guys got big 4th of July plans? How many of you took Monday off just because it's like a five-day weekend? Heck yeah. Yeah? A few of you? Hashtag America, right? Okay, so let's, let's get a little patriotic here just for a moment. We have a declaration of independence, do we not? Now, when we wrote, and I say we because we own these things together, right? So when we wrote the Declaration of Independence to England to, to say this is what we're going to do, we did not just go, dear king, number one, you're lame, here's what you did, da 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 we're out, hashtag America. We didn't do that. There was a preamble. There was an introduction of sorts. There was, there was a part attached to it that was really important to everything that was going to follow. So let's look at it. At the Declaration, in the Declaration of Independence, it opens by saying, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now what is this saying? This would be the indicative. This would be, listen, hey England, Here's what we believe. Here is what we believe to be today, that people have these rights. This is the statement, England, that is the, um, if you will, the foundation. This undergirds everything we're about to tell you. And it's part of what, if you will, controls and directs what we're about to do. And so because we believe that people are born with these rights by God, that they're given to us by birth, not by you, King, Then we look at the way that you've treated us and we go, this isn't okay and this isn't okay and this isn't okay and therefore we're separating from you because you violated what we believe. Does that make sense? This is what they did. They didn't just, just, uh, hey, by the way, we won't be to dinner next week or ever again. Bye. Like they didn't do that. Uh, Let's look at the Constitution of the United States. Same thing. The Constitution opens with, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. What are they doing there? They're laying out for you the indicatives that are saying, this is what we believe is important, crucial, and and absolutely uh, the essence of what a nation should be. And because this is what we believe... Here are the laws that we are enacting to govern and to to create for us this. Does that make sense? The Constitution doesn't go, here's the Constitution. Number one, this. Number two, this. Number three, this. Number four, don't do this. Number five, never ever do this. You know, that's not how it goes. And the Ten Commandments is the same way. The Ten Commandments does not just start out with, number one, this. Very important and attached to it. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20 where God's law is given. It says... Verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image, etc., etc., on and on and on. Now look at what's being said here. You guys know God doesn't just give random rules and just go, ah, this. But no, what God is doing is he had just rescued a totally helpless nation of people who were absolute slaves in abject poverty with no authority, with no power, with no ability to do anything on their own. God rescued them. He delivered them from the most powerful army in the world. He delivered them from a dictator that was saying no, 10 times in fact, over and over and over. God rescued them from these people, brought them out, was taking them to an incredible place, a place he refers to as flowing with milk and honey, a place that he was a promised land that he was giving to them. And along the way, he gives to them the laws that would govern how God was going to lead his people and how God's people would relate to him. But he doesn't just start out with like, so here's the rules. There's an imperative, or excuse me, an indicative that precedes the imperative. And the indicative is, I am the Lord your God, which establishes what? Authority. I am the Lord. I am your God. It establishes his authority. But then there's something of his character that's attached to it as well, where he says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I am the Lord and you have experienced grace. You have experienced my care. You have experienced deliverance out of my loving hand. And out of that, here is what our relationship is going to look like. And so in that position, in that case with the people of Israel in Exodus, as well as throughout the scriptures, anytime the Bible calls us to an imperative or a command, it always calls us to do these things out of our identity as recipients of the grace of God. Every time. And that's so important because the idea is this. Because of what God has done for you, because of God's identity and authority, which the kingship of Jesus is huge in this book, but also out of the truth that you have been saved and experienced the grace and mercy of God, you've been adopted into his family and you are now his child. Out of that identity, I'm calling you to something. Because see, a lot of people view Christianity as like just a, it's no different really than a concert ticket, just a really big and really, really long concert. Like some of you guys may have bought tickets to this huge country festival thing that's coming up here in a couple of weeks. When you bought that ticket, you spent that money, you got your ticket, so your admission is assured into that thing, but it doesn't do you any good right now, right? I got my ticket, I'll just put it on the shelf. When the day comes around, whenever that concert is, I'll, I'll go get it then, but until that day, I don't really need it, but I'm glad I got it, I'll get in when it comes. That's not the Christian experience. The Christian experience is that we have been called out of something and into something. And the thing that God has called us into, this idea of Christian living and what it looks like to live as a Christian, it is so important that we understand everything God calls us to do is birthed out of the grace and goodness of God. And it's so important. We're going to see this. So in this text, 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 through 3, you could really describe it as just a celebration of the fact that the church in Thessalonica is saved. 
you remember reading through it, Paul's just saying, man, remember when I came to you with this message, remember how you received the word as if it was the word of God, not the word of man, that this word came to you in power, that you believed it. He talks about the faith that's working in them. They are alive. They have been changed. They are children of God. And now that they are children of God, he's going into this idea of Christian living. So the indicative The truth, the reality that Paul exclaims to them in chapter 1 through 3 is you are the redeemed people, children of God, part of the family of the Most High King. And so now he moves into the imperatives, the commands, and the overall imperative. Like, what is it that God wants for Christians now that we have been saved? What is it God demands of us could really be summarized quite well by saying, please him. Take a look with me if you would. Verse 1, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that do more and more. The call to Christians, the call to Christian morality, the Christian life, the Christian walk, however you want to describe it, can really be summarized as a life that pleases God. When's the last time you thought about that? I don't think that's what we focus on typically when we think of the Christian life. I think our default is to go to rules. All right, I'm saved, the grace of God, and now what do I got to do? And to bust out our list. I got to do this and this and this and this and this, and I shouldn't do that and that and that and that. And it's sort of the same thing that God saved us from. We bring it in the back doors, we become Christians, and we become rules-focused, even if our intent is to try to please God. But what if our focus is a little backwards and just, if anything, just makes it more complicated? Let me, let me clarify some confusion, by the way. If you've been coming here for some time, you might be thinking, Jeff, I don't get it, because you say this all the time. All the time you say, Jeff, Jeff, you say, God delights in us. You told me, Jeff, that God delights in me. You've told all of us over and over and over that God delights in us, that we have the approval of God apart from performance, that God loves us 100% as more than we can possibly imagine, total perfect love because of the work of Jesus Christ, not because of the work of me. You told us that, Jeff. And I would say, yes, I did. And I am really impressed with how well you listen. Great. Then you go, but now you're saying, but I need to please God. So on one hand, you're saying, God, is, God delights in me. And on the other hand, you're saying, live in such a way that brings delight to God. That sounds like you're getting, like you're undoing all this amazing grace stuff that I love with some sneaky Christian language and really work is part of it all together. And it just doesn't really work that way. And I don't really like this. Well, let me explain to you what I mean. First of all, is it true? Yes, it is absolutely true. God delights in you perfectly, totally because of the work of Jesus Christ, not because of your own performance. God, 100% perfectly loves you. But the love of God is actually very, very complicated. D.A. Carson is a, uh, probably the most uh, preeminent New Testament theologian alive today. And he wrote a book that's called um, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And in this book, he kind of breaks down how the Bible presents the love of God to us in some different categories to help us understand things that might seem like they're contradictions. How can we have the perfect love of God? And then it also says we need to live in such a way that pleases him. Seems like we're already there, but now we have to do it. How do we do this? And so he breaks it down like this. He says there's different categories of the love of God. For example, he talks about the Trinitarian love of God. 
And the Trinitarian love of God would be absolutely unapproachable by any of us as humans. This is the perfect love that exists between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's the kind of love that you see Jesus expressing to God the Father in his life. It is a perfect love that we couldn't possibly ever come close to actually achieving. Then there's the general love of God. The the general love of God is the love that God has for all of his creation. And by all, I mean all, everything that's created. So if you, the theologians will refer to this sometimes as common graces. These are graces and gifts that God gives to us and to his creation because he loves us generally. So if it's a 70 degree day with a nice gentle breeze and it's just not a cloud in the sky, just one of those amazing Southern Oregon spring-like days, we as Christians can go outside and just sit in the backyard and put our toes in the grass and just be like, ah, and it's great. Is it not church? But an unbeliever can experience that exact same thing. It's not like they go out and because we're Christians, we feel nice, cool grass and they just feel pine cones. Like there are general graces, expressions of God's love that are given to all of creation. And the hope, the idea is that as they come to understand that even the creation that is so beautiful and given to them declares the glory of God, that they would learn something of the love of God and move out of just a general love of God, but to a specific love of God. But there's the general love of God. Then there's what he refers to as the electing love of God. And the electing love of God is a specific love that God gives to his that he doesn't give to everyone else. And people think, wait a minute, that's not true. God loves us all the same. No, that is not what the Bible says. Even in the Old Testament, the Bible talks about the people of Israel. They were his chosen beloved in a way that he doesn't say that about anyone else. And he gave gifts and expressions of his love specifically to the people of Israel that he did not give to the Assyrians or the Babylonians or others. In fact, in some cases, he wiped out other nations because of his love for the people of Israel. Now, yes, it is true that his plan was that the love he gives to Israel would cause people to understand who he is and they could be grafted in and experience that same love. But there's no denying that it was unique. And the same thing actually happens as well with us. When we get saved and are adopted into the family of God, there is a different kind of love that God gives to those who are his. He puts his Holy Spirit in you. He gives gifts to you. He speaks and walks with you in a way that is different than those who are not his. So that is the electing love of God as he refers to it. And then the last one is this, and this is the one we're talking about today. There's the variable love of God as he presents it. And you would say the variable love of God, that sounds weird and, and blasphemous. What are you talking about, Jeff? It's the kind of love that's being talked about when you read passages that say things like, keep yourself in the love of God. It, the variable love of God could best be understood through a family dynamic. And I have three kids. I have Hannah, I have Allie, and I have Bentley. They are mine. They have a specific, you might call electing, if you will, love of Jeff. I love them in a way I don't love any other kids anywhere else. And I love kids. Love kids. Fourth of July, we'll be with some other families. We'll be at a pool party. There'll be kids around, and I'll love kids, and I'll play with kids, and all that kind of stuff. But come Christmas, I'm not spending as much money on any of those other kids as I'm going to end up spending on my kids, because they're my kids. And nothing, 
Nothing can change the fact that I love them because they're mine. No matter what, that love is 100%. It will not change. They're my kids, right? You guys got kids like that? Say amen. But let's just be honest. Don't you just want to get away from them sometimes? That's the variable love of a father. The kind of love that's like, I love you, you're mine. But what you're doing is actually grieving me right now. Or the kind of love that goes, I love you, you're mine, and right now I'm so proud of you. Look what you've done. Look what you achieved. Look what you, how you obeyed. Look how you're loving, etc., etc., etc. We see this kind of stuff in Scripture. We see in the Scriptures that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We see in Scripture also, though, that there's things that we can do that seems to present a sort of fatherly pride that God has in His children. You see it in the book of Job. I mean, God seems to be just gushing about Job. Have you considered my servant Job, who walks in righteousness and obedience? He's looking at Job and he's honoring him. There's this fatherly pride that exists that God is pouring out and speaking of about Job. And that's the kind of variable love when we talk about the idea of pleasing God. This is what we're talking about. That our obedience and the way that we walk on this earth, Christian living in general, we can grieve God by our disobedience and rebellion, and we can delight God by our obedience and our willingness to follow him. We see it even in the example of Jesus Christ who wrote in John 8 verse 29, he said this, this is he, excuse me, and he who sent me is with me, speaking of God the Father, He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus says, God the Father sent me, and I know that he's with me, and and his presence is even evident as I am doing the things that please him. And I think a lot of us have experienced seasons where it's almost like you can feel that as you're walking with God in obedience. And so this is what we're talking about. This is what Paul's talking about. So he's going to get into some specifics, and and today we're not going to really focus so much on the specifics, though we'll spend a little more time on one than the other because Paul does as well. But, But the idea is this. The goal of the Christian life, and the way that I think would be way more beneficial for us to look at it, is not to try to make a list and order and these, the do's and don'ts, but you could summarize all of it in a way by just saying, my goal is to please God. And there's an element there of relational attachment to God in that way that is different than a religious rule-following rule kind of thing. The idea is we're not trying to keep the law, we're trying to please the lawgiver. And that approach has a much more personal dynamic, does it not? Am I wrong in that? That approach has a much more personal dynamic. There's a story um, that was told of a little boy and he was being cajoled by some friends into like stealing something or breaking a window or one of those things little boys do that cause us dads to go, I want to wring his neck, that kind of a thing. And he wouldn't do it. He was just like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And his friend's like, come on, come on, let's do it with us. And the little boy's like, no, no, I can't do it because of my dad. And they're like, oh, you big whip, you're just afraid of what your dad's going to do to you if he finds out. And he goes, no, 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 I'm afraid of what this will do to my dad if he finds out. You see the difference there. There's an idea of like, I have a genuine love for my father and I want to walk in such a way that pleases and honors him because I love him. As opposed to just a mindless rule keeping that can really be self-serving in its reality. So what pleases God? 
fruitful life pleases God. The scriptures tell us that knowledge of God pleases God, that obedience pleases God. There's many things that the Bible teaches us, but we're in this book in this particular text. And so what does Paul say to them in verse two? For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. We'll come back to that. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. One of the ways that we walk in obedience before God in a way that pleases God is how we as Christians handle the issue of sex and sexual immorality. And the Bible is crystal clear in how Christians are to handle sexual morality. Crystal clear. If there are areas that we see in the church globally, and we do to this day, actually, if there are areas that we see with regards to the topics of sexual immorality where the church appears to be waffling, it is because the church is bowing and wrestling with social conventions in the culture outside. It is not because God's not clear in his word. He is crystal clear. And his definition for the boundaries and the use of any issues regarding sex and sexuality is to be done within the confines of a monogamous male-female husband-wife marriage relationship. And that is all. Well, Jeff, you're so old-fashioned. You're so old-fashioned. We've evolved It's not the 50s anymore. It's not, oh, you Christians and your rules. That's not the way it is. Well, that's, let's ask. I mean, number one, let's just skip the question of is current culture working? But let's talk about this idea that we as Christians are old-fashioned because of our definitions of marriage, our definitions of sexuality, all those kinds of things. We here at Heritage, when we take our approach to the scriptures, we use what's called a historical grammatical approach. We want to understand what's going on in the culture when it was written, the culture that it was written to. So let's just take that alone, for example. Paul, at this particular time, is in a city called Corinth, and he's writing to a city called Thessalonica. So what were those places like? First, where Paul was writing from. He was in the city of Corinth there. The skyline of the city, the entire city of Corinth, was dominated by one temple that was set up and established for the worship of Aphrodite or Venus, the god of procreation and sexual intimacy. And in that temple were over a thousand temple prostitutes who worshipers, so to speak, would come to the temple and engage in sexual immorality in that temple as a form of worship to the goddess of Aphrodite. And then every night as the sun came down, those temple prostitutes would make their way down into the city, bringing that same sort of degradation into the population everywhere, wherever it is that they went. That's where Paul was. Paul understands a society that is permeated with sexuality. That's why he writes this in 1 Corinthians. Look at this. Verse 18, chapter 6. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you see what Paul's doing even in the text? I mean, think about it in that cultural concept, uh, um, context with this big temple up on the hill, prostitutes all over the place, and Paul goes, not like them. That's not you. This, t- 
temple and its effects in the society down here. Don't you understand who you are? And he goes back to the indicative that he has already opened up earlier in Corinthians. And he goes, you are a temple. That's the current reality. You are a temple. God has put his Holy Spirit in you and you're not like them. So we don't walk in such a way like them. That's the culture he came from. Well, the culture he's writing to, Thessalonica, worship in Thessalonica, one of the primary goddesses being worshipped in that city was Aphrodite, Venus, same one. In fact, there are writings that say that in Thessalonica, that the citizens of the city, it was believed, were marked by rites of sexual excess. Think about that. In the city's culture, it was believed you have the right to sexual excess. Does that sound familiar at all? That we have actual inalienable rights as people to do whatever we want sexually? So that's the culture he was writing to. People go, oh, you're so old-fashioned. Sexual immorality is incredibly old-fashioned. It's been around for a really, really long time. We're just the dummies that keep buying back into it over and over. There's a verse in um, Ecclesiastes, say not why were the former days better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. In other words, pining for the good old days, unless you're talking about pre-Genesis 3, you're wasting your time talking about the good old days. Billy Joel, the theologian, the good old days weren't always good. Tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. That actually could describe Thessalonians, but we'll get to the tomorrow part next week. So the idea that biblical values are old-fashioned, it, it is, and I mean this respect, it is, it's ignorant. It's not understanding the realities of what cultures have been going through since the dawn of man. So we're not old-fashioned. But what does God say about this? Like with regards to rights, we can do whatever we want, and we get to determine and all these things. Look at verse 6. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So let me start out with this. He says, God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. What is holiness? It's, it's defined specifically as set apart. Um, you might say set apart and dedicated totally to God. That's what holiness is. So different than everything else, not dedicated to Aphrodite, not dedicated to money, not dedicated to that temple or this place or these people, dedicated to God, different. And what does he say about those who don't live that way? It's actually really somber. It's, it's sobering. I mean, he says, let no one transgress, which literally means um, to cross a boundary. You might think of a boundary of what's appropriate and inappropriate. Let no one cross a boundary and wrong his brother. The word wrong there um, literally means to exploit or manipulate to one's advantage. And this is what he means by that. To engage in that kind of sexual activity with someone outside of marriage is to use someone for your own personal pleasure and gain. 
It is only within the bounds of that marriage relationship where God has a, a, a relationship between man and woman set up so that each one is esteeming the others first, so that even sexual intimacy becomes much more about give than receive, and it's certainly not about exploit. It's within the boundaries of an actual covenant and commitment to one another, as opposed to a relationship where I'll just get what I want now, and then when I'm done with you, or I'm over it, or it's more work than it's worth, I'll move on. And he says, don't do that. And then he says even more than that, because the Lord is an avenger in these things. As we told you beforehand, and look, and solemnly warned you. You know what that means? That, that means Paul got these guys together and said, listen, I'm serious. Take my word for this. All this sexual immorality going on, I understand it's part of your culture. I understand many of you have it in your background. Some of you are already entangled with it, and it's going to be a fight to try to get out of it. But listen, trust me, don't go there because God deals with this. He said that to Christians, by the way. We can have that belief that in the grace of God, we're suddenly not going to be accountable anymore to the things that we do. And he says to Christians, don't go there. God avenges these things. I warned you, and I was serious. You go, Jeff, now would be a really good time to come in with some of that grace stuff that makes me feel better. Don't go there. God avenges those things. We'll stand before you. We'll stand before him, excuse me, and he's serious about it. There's no softening to be done. This is the word of the Lord. And he says, and whoever disregards this doesn't disregard man, but disregards who? God. Remember the Ten Commandments? I'm the one that rescued you from slavery, yes, but what else did it say? I am the Lord your God. His authority, whether we recognize it or not, is already established. This is why in the story with Joseph and Potiphar's wife, you remember that story? He's a slave inside the home of Potiphar, and his wife chooses to cross those boundaries to wrong him in such a way as to gain from him, to take advantage of a guy who was a slave in her home and to try to have sex with him. He refuses to do it, leaves his coat behind running out of it as she grabs it and runs. And what is it he says? How can I do this and what? Sin against who? God. He understood. God takes this seriously. And because I'm a child of God, I want to live in such a way that's not concerned with what pleases me, but what pleases God. And this is his approach to that. Oh, you're so old-fashioned. It's no. But, I, but I'm, what I'm trying to do today is I'm not trying to make it a sermon about sex. In fact, I'm going to actually sort of blow through some of these other ones because I, I believe even Paul sort of throws them in as bullet points almost. What, what I want us to do is consider it not so much from the standpoint of, okay, what did, what did I learn from the sermon today? I learned I better not have sex before marriage. I better not be in sexual immorality. That's not the emphasis I want you to walk out of here with. I want us to understand, reframe our thinking away from a rules-based type of living to saying, and really for ourselves individually pondering, do I please God? in the way that I live, and building a desire in us that says, I want to please God. Ephesians 5, verse 8 through 10 says, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
what pleases God? Do we please God? Let's close this out and see what else he talks about, see how this works. Verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. I, I want to point out the process here. We, we talked a little bit a couple of weeks ago about the fact that this church became known for its love, that they were loving one another, they were loving people outside the city, and as this love was growing and as they were loving more and more, they were really becoming known for it. It would have really stood out in a city that was consumed with, with money and sex, because in both of those things, it's all about getting as much of it as you can for your own personal benefit. And suddenly, here's this little pocket of people that have been changed by this guy that came through. They've been saved, and now they're living in such a way that they're not there to gain anymore. They're there to give. And people are seeing it, and they're like, this is just, it looks different. And that's the point. Because Paul said from the very beginning, this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's what he said here in verse 3, I believe it is. Yes, verse 3 of our text. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Jeff, I want to know God's will for my life. Be sanctified. Yeah, yeah, but should I marry this girl? Maybe, I don't know. He might not even care. Just be sanctified. Where should I live? Wherever you can be sanctified. What job should I have? Well, job number one, be sanctified. After that, I mean, God may have specific roles for people, but sometimes I think he just works with what we end up doing. He's way more concerned with the reality that he wants us to be sanctified. It's the will of God. Sanctification is a big fancy word for a process that starts the day that we get saved and it will end in its completion the day that we stand before God in glory. It is a process of changing. Um, you see it in the text. You can see these allusions to this change because in verse one, look how he says it. Um, Walk and please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. So it's not like you guys are nailing it, just keep doing that and you're good. But no, there's this growth in what's happening. And he seems to bookend it to some degree, even as he finishes in verse 11 and 12. And he goes on down in verse 10, I'm sorry. We urge you brothers to do this more and more. And he describes more of what that even looks like to aspire to live quietly, to be peaceful people, to mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You're not going to be a leech. You're not going to be a taker. You're going to work hard. You're going to be a giver. You're not going to be nosy. You're going to be peaceable. You're going to love the people that are around you and you're going to do it more and more continually growing. I'm a giver. I give good. Give more. I love people. Awesome. Love more. More and more is this process of sanctification. But what really is it? Like, what's the essence of it? Is it like, okay, don't go back to rules-based. Sanctification means I got to become more loving, more patient, more kind. That, that complicates, I think, the heart of what God is really asking from us. I think we make it too complicated. I, I think in reality, well, listen to this. This is anybody former like Presbyterians or anything like that back in your previous life. So you're going to recognize this, the Westminster Catechism, the shorter catechism, because I'm gracious and not going to read a lot to you guys today. Take a look at what it says about sanctification. This is a definition of sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. 
So in this, you see this idea of this process more and more. You see it again that we're going to more and more die to sin and more and more live to righteousness. We're going to grow in what it looks like to be a Christian. Yes, but what's the heart of it? The heart of it is hidden right here in the middle when it says these three words right here. We are renewed in the whole man in the what? Image of God. I love the way 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Think of it in that same context. He's saying, hey guys, I know there's so many backgrounds in this room. There's different nationalities, different ethnic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different denomination backgrounds. There's different races, different sexes, different experiences. Some of you have different histories and different baggage. There's all of these things. But listen, church, the Holy Spirit has been put in you and the work of sanctification that began on the day you got saved and will finish on the day that you stand before God in glory is in process. And what is that work really? That more and more we are all, no matter who we are or who we've been, being changed into the same image. What is that image? The image of God. We were created in the image of God and our sin and rebellion fractured that. And when the Holy Spirit came back in, he's putting all of those things back together and he's making his children look like him. That's what it means to be a Christian. To just look like dad. And when you're a dad, what's more pleasing than when you see that with your kids? You know, uh, you may not know this about me. I'm a little bit of a North Carolina Tar Heel basketball fan, it turns out. And uh, yeah, seriously. And um, a few weeks back, I got the opportunity, bucket list dream. You guys already know this story, but I'm going to tell it as many times as I get a chance until the day that I die. It's it's because it pleases God. But I got to go to the national championship game, the final four down in in Phoenix, Arizona, and I got to watch North Carolina win the championship game, um, win the national championship in person. And it was an amazing bucket list thing. But there was one little part of it that was kind of lame, that it hit me while I was there at at the game, actually. And that's that um, I wasn't watching the game with my kids. And see... Some of you have asked me before, like, Carolina Duke game will be on or something like that. And be like, hey, let's get together and watch the game. And I always give you the same answer. I'm like, nope. Because if you saw me while I'm watching a Carolina Duke basketball game, you would never respect me ever, ever, ever again. Because I'm a fool watching these games. I I cannot sit down. I walk around. I used to have this rubber ball. I'm pretty sure my wife popped it and threw it away because I can't find it. But I think I used to have this ball. And when there would be bad calls, I'd throw it against the wall. Like I just, I'm a mess watching these games. And it's awesome. And it's God's grace on his child. It's fun. It is fun. And as my kids have grown, they do it with me. And so it's, it's awesome. It's funny. And they don't even know all the things that are going on half the time. Like, they don't know the players. They don't understand half the rules. And they're growing. They're learning. Hannah played basketball this year. But, but it's fun when those big games come and they get into it with me and they get their Tar Heel gear on, which I give them because I love them and I want them to be blessed and all this kind of stuff. And so here I am down in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm watching the game. And, like, it, it kind of hits you for a moment. Like, man, but I'm not watching the game with my kids. And I know they're going to be at home. I know they're watching. They're like, let's watch and see if we can see dad on TV. But I had such cheap nosebleed seats. There was no shot. Like the Hubble telescope couldn't have found me at that game. And um, 
And right before the game, I got a text message from my daughter. Can we put this image up? And look what she sent me. She sent me this picture with my hat on and her Tar Heel shirt. I'm acting as you right now watching the game. Which might not be a good thing. Um, <laughs> I'm acting as you right now watching the game. Let me tell you, my heart was full in that moment. There was a variable love of dad that was bursting with pride for his daughter in that moment. And that's what we're called to be as Christians. Honor dad. Please dad. And how do we please him most? By being just like him. Learning to be graceful like he is graceful. Learning to be patient like he is patient. Learning things about what he has done for us and then wanting to grow in those things as well so that we can do those things for other people. That's what it means to be a Christian. And are there things we need to understand specifics about how to handle such things like sexual immorality and all that kind of stuff? Yes, but I don't want you to get the cart before the horse and I don't want you to rob Christian living of its heart and soul which can really totally be boiled down to the fact that we just want to live in a way that pleases a God who has given everything for us because he's worthy of it. We just want to be like dad. May God give us that grace. Amen, church? Let's stand and pray. The truth is not a set of facts to memorize. The truth is a person to know. Amen, church? Father, help us to know you. Father, help us to draw close to you. Father, help us to love you to make you proud in that way that you might. We know, Lord, that positionally when we were saved by you, we have been secured. We have your approval and love. But Lord, now that we're part of the family, may we live in such a way that makes dad proud. So Father, heal us. Grow us. Free us. Grant us repentance and forgiveness May your spirit have its way with us. Lord, will you give us victory over sin? Help us, Lord, to run from temptation and flee all sorts of immorality. May we be known by our love. Lord, help us to know you. And because we know you, help us to look like you. That is our prayer, God. We pray that you would grace us with this. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. Have a great weekend. Wednesday night, first, uh, first Wednesday service. Don't forget. I love you guys. God bless.